0: Welcome back. My name is Cody, and we're going to be talking about something called typology and how through understanding typology, we can understand in in such a deep and rich way how all of the Old Testament points to Christmas. And because we're in Advent, I think it's a very important thing for Christians to know uh, the more deeply how important Christmas is so that we can also celebrate it better so that we can know our Lord better and have a a deeper understanding and love for the word of God as well. Advent is not a time for us to be penitent. It's not a time for us to feel sorry for ourselves or to uh, eat less food, but it is a time to eat more food, to feel good because our Lord was born in the flesh to die and save us from our sins and that is something worth celebrating enormously it's not a time where we eat less food it's a time where we should eat more food it's not a time where we should be more frugal but it is a time where we should be more generous in celebration of jesus so first what exactly is typology and why is it so important some of you might not have even heard of typology uh, so it's a, it's this theological term, but I think it's um, it's important and it's also very biblical and it's pretty simple to understand too. So first, what exactly is typology? Typology is a special kind of symbolism that points to some greater thing. The symbol is called the type; the greater thing is called the antitype. So. The smaller thing is the type of the bigger thing, the anti-type. So why is that important and how does this apply? Well, it's important because Jesus thinks it's important. Uh, he criticized the Jews in John five thirty nine through 40, saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So a lot of the Jews, the Pharisees, especially, they were in the scripture all the time. They read the Bible. They knew the Bible, but they weren't reading the Bible typologically, meaning they didn't see the things that were pointing to Jesus. They were reading it in the wrong way, which means we can read the Bible in the wrong way. And we even have an obligation to read the Bible like this, where we see Jesus in the Old Testament. And, and we see things pointing to other greater things throughout the entirety of Scripture. In Luke 24, 27, this is when uh, Jesus is traveling with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't at first realize that it's him. It says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. That means there were things in Moses and the prophets concerning Jesus, even though Jesus was never even born yet. So this is further proof indicating that the Old Testament, the entirety of the Old Testament, the writings, the laws, the prophets, Moses and the prophet, you know, the law and the prophets, all of it points to Jesus. Jesus himself said that. And so I think us today, we need to be aware of that too. We need to be reading the Bible properly. And to read the Bible properly, we need to be seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And so what I'm going to do is walk you through very, uh, very briefly. And I'm also going to, to skip a lot of things because we're going to basically be going through the entire Old Testament, all the, all the major characters in the Old Testament and how pieces of their story points directly to Jesus. And it's so cool. Some of these things you may have heard before, and some of them might be totally fresh. And this is also going to be a two part episode. The second part I'm going to focus on uh, one of the darkest stories in the Bible, but also how it it is one of the most important stories for us to understand the Christmas story. But for now, we'll just work through uh, leading up to this story. That's one of my favorites in the Bible, uh, but one of the roughest stories in the Bible, too. Let's start with Adam and Eve. Uh, So another Another thing before we get into Adam and Eve is uh, there are, in Romans 5, Paul says that Adam is a type of Christ. So Adam, this is an example of typology uh, being played out in verses in the Bible. So Paul blatantly says Adam is a type of Christ. Adam is a symbol that points to the greater thing, which is Jesus. In other words, Adam had this kind of function that was similar, but in a smaller way to Jesus and Jesus is the fulfillment and the better version of that thing than Adam was. I hope that makes sense. In first Peter three, Peter also says to give another example of typology that Noah's flood is a type that points to baptism and so typology is a is a biblical thing and it's also something that Jesus himself wants us to do. Uh so speaking of Adam and Eve, one of the uh the earliest or well the earliest um obvious instance of the coming and the necessity of a Messiah is in the earliest chapters of Genesis, where God uh, curses the serpent that, uh, that manipulated Eve into uh, betraying God. And he says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now, this points to the idea that the, the offspring of the woman, ultimately Jesus, is the one who crushes the head of Satan which has happened in Jesus. So this is this is the first instance of pointing toward Jesus. And something I was just thinking about earlier as I was studying this is another interesting passage near there where God tells Eve that she will be saved through childbearing. Uh, her pain will be increased in childbearing, but she will be saved through it. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I was always a little bit confused by that, but it it just kind of popped into my head today. It was an epiphany. Eve's offspring is Jesus, who she is saved by. So that is yet another verse that Jesus is in, in the Old Testament. Eve's offspring is the offspring who saves her. And that same offspring will crush the head of the serpent. So later on, we have Noah. And uh, Noah, of course, he built the ark and there was a flood and he... Uh, saved the world essentially through this arc now and I, I've I was thinking about the flood recently and one interesting thing that I was thinking of was um, that one we know that the world was very bad and the world was bad where people were um, being given up to their own desires to sexual deviancy and all sorts of other bad stuff and I had always thought in the past, growing up, that we're just not as bad as they were back then. But I think, morally, there are a lot of really bad things that happen today. And so, part of me used to think, like, well, yeah, God doesn't promise that there's going to be another flood, but why doesn't he punish the world in another way or is there another punishment coming and i think that led me to believe in a, a premillennialism where things are going to be horrible and awful and jesus is going to come back and and swoop up all the bad stuff and and rescue his people out of that um but more recently i was thinking about the flood and the the conclusion that I came up with is we aren't necessarily morally better than the people before the flood. Uh there was a lot of rampant sin before the flood. You know, there might be less sin today than there was back then, but I think the thing is we there are the same kinds of sin around today that there was back then. And so what's the difference? Is the difference that we are better? I don't think so because The Bible says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And apart from Jesus, no one can do good. No one is good except for God. And so the world is morally equally as bad as it used to be before the flood. The difference is that instead of punishing us for our sins, God has chosen a different course. There is a new covenant in place now that is not a covenant of works, but it's a covenant of grace. That God initially implements through, um, maybe through, in a way through Moses, and then that leads into Abraham, and then then it is fulfilled in the new covenant through Jesus. But uh, here's an interesting thing, and that'll tie into this. After the flood, God promises that he will never flood the earth again with a rainbow. The word bow in the Bible is the same word for a bow that an archer would shoot. And if we look at a rainbow, a rainbow is pointed this way. And if that were a bow, the bow would be pointed up. Now, (laughs) this is typology, so it can get kind of weird. The word is bow. And God says, I will set my bow in the sky. And the bow is pointed up toward God. Previous to the flood, there was no rainbow. There was no flood. And so God's wrath all at once was poured out down on us. And all the sin was wiped away from the world. But it didn't work. That It wasn't a permanent solution, in other words, is what I mean, because sin came back. And so the flood is something that can teach us that, um, you know, we are bad, and that is the thing that comes from being bad. But the thing that saves us now is not God wiping us out, but it is God instead pointing his wrath back up towards himself. And later we see that God's wrath was poured out, not on us, but on Jesus on the cross. So that's another pointing toward Jesus. And Jesus could not have died on the cross and fulfilled that promise in the flood uh, without being born in Christmas. So I thought that that's a beautiful, beautiful pointing toward Jesus, again, that we see in the Old Testament. Another thing to think about is that the world was saved through an ark And I have more to say about that, but uh, this is a different word used in Hebrew, but an ark, uh, another word that, that is translated into ark is a word that just means box. And Jesus was placed in a kind of box, which saved the world in the manger in Bethlehem. And he was also surrounded by animals, just like the ark. Jesus was in a box surrounded by animals. God saved the world through these people who are in this box surrounded by animals. There are parallels in these two stories, and that points toward the thing that Jesus did later. Another thing that's worth mentioning is Jesus is called the bread of life, and Jesus, the bread of life, was placed in a feeding trough for animals. And he was surrounded by animals, which, um, you know, being around animal animals, excrement and that kind of thing was considered unclean. And there were all these uncleanliness rules in the Bible, as you probably know. And Jesus was a very special thing that instead of being made unclean, like anybody would when they come in contact with an unclean thing, according to the Bible, Jesus did exactly the opposite. He was a cleaning agent. He was the anti-corruption. Instead of Something that corrupts good things, or or like a like a, a a pollutant that pollutes something good. You can't unpollute something, but that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus, um, you know, death wins over life. But Jesus is life that wins over death. He can touch dead people, which would normally make you unclean, and he could bring them back to life. He can touch women who had issues with um, or a particular woman who had an issue with bleeding her entire life. And that makes a person unclean and touching a person like that makes you unclean. And she touches him, which normally would make you unclean. But she is made clean instead. So Jesus is the anti-pollutant. He is the anti-corruption that purifies the world. And he was born in a gross, nasty place. In a a manger surrounded by animals, surrounded by animal poop. That's the stuff we don't think about. Uh, Surrounded by murder. Because children were being murdered. Uh, Right after Jesus was born and and uh, King Herod was looking for Jesus so that he could cut off the line of the Messiah. So the Christmas story is surrounded by murder and darkness and and dirtiness and grossness. But the beauty of the Christmas story, it's not just some isolated incident that that happened out of the blue. But it is something that God was working toward from the very earliest chapters of Genesis And through this baby, who was born in this gross, dark place in a small town of Bethlehem, the entire world could be saved. And he was the bread of life placed in a feeding trough, like I said before, um, a feeding trough for animals, which is to say even, even gross, dirty animals are not too low for Jesus to be around. Yeah. And if, if the bread of life can be put in an animal trough, then the bread of life can also be given to us as sinners. Moving on to Abraham. Uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Yeah. There are many more things, by the way, the point to Jesus in the old Testament, but these are things that are especially meaningful to me. And I think these are a lot of major events of major people in the old Testament. So there, there are more things that I'm going to miss, uh, but these are just very fascinating things to me in abraham god makes a covenant with abraham and he makes abraham fall into a deep sleep and abraham has a dream and god in the dream splits an animal in half which is a sign of a covenant and uh the the two members of the covenant were supposed to pass through the middle of the animals and that was to symbolize if if uh either one of us breaks this covenant this is our punishment like we are to be uh, you know, our punishment is death and we are to be, sp- uh, 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 rent asunder, but God does something interesting. He, he splits this animal in half and the presence of the Lord goes through the animal and not Abraham. God makes Abraham stay back, which is, it's kind of like a one-way covenant. God says, I'm going to make this covenant with you and you don't have to do anything to uphold it. I am going to work out these things in you, and you're not going to do anything to earn it, which points towards the kind of salvation that God offers us in the new covenant through Jesus. It's a salvation that we cannot possibly earn on our own, but all of it is God, just like the covenant with Abraham. God also promises Abraham that his seed will be like the stars in the sky, as plentiful as the stars in the sky. And so the seed of Abraham has this connection with stars. And we also see the the um, ultimate seed of Abraham, which is Jesus born under a star. The seed of Abraham uh, is born under the star of Bethlehem that the Magi are guided to him. And Uh, The the shepherds are guided to him as well, and and the angels are singing, and all this is heralded by a star. Also, uh, in Abraham is all of Israel, because they are his descendants, and Abraham tithes to a fella named Melchizedek, and this is the first instance of tithing in the whole Bible. This is before Israel was established and the tithing rules were initiated. And Israel meets this king and a priest who is a priest of the Most High God, which is weird because we don't hear about him before or after this until Hebrews when the author says Jesus is in the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. But Abraham, and through Abraham, all of Israel, tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's name is King of Righteousness. And he is a priest of the Most High God, and he is the king of a place called Salem. And Salem means peace. So Jesus is the king of righteousness of the city of peace. Interesting. <laughs> Those you should, you should see some obvious parallels with Jesus. And also, Jesus is a prophet and a king and a priest, according to Hebrews, in the order of Melchizedek, and all of Israel tithe to him. It's also interesting that Abraham offers to Melchizedek bread and wine to eat. Very interesting. Moving on to Moses. Moses is interesting. So when Moses was born, um, the Hebrews in Egypt. They, they were in slavery in Egypt, in bondage. They were doing very well for themselves. They were multiplying and becoming more powerful, and Egypt tried to oppress them and keep them down, but the more they oppressed them, the more Israel, or the more the, the Jews grew, the Hebrews. And in response, Pharaoh said, well, you know, oppressing them isn't working, so we're just going to kill them. And so Pharaoh makes a... Rule that says all of the newborn sons must be killed because we want to stop these uh, these people from reproducing. The daughters can live; the sons must be killed. And Moses was one of those sons that was born. Now, this is very similar to the command that King Herod gave when Jesus was born. Herod made a command that all newborn sons would be killed because he was trying to cut off the line of the Messiah. Now, interestingly, uh, Jesus is also in in this same line that Moses is in, and uh, and so you see the connection there. Herod made this rule that all newborn sons are are to be killed, and so did Pharaoh. Now where did Moses flee to? So Moses's parents put him in an ark, a basket. Now this word is the same word that is used for um, the ark that noah built the ark that was noah's and the ark of moses is actually the same word in hebrew the word manger is not the same word but both words can be translated to ark uh, which is just like a containing place but specifically it's it's even more interesting that uh that noah's ark and the basket that moses was in does share exactly the same word in hebrew Because Moses was placed in an ark and through him, again, the world was saved because through through Moses, God's people were freed and, uh, and Israel was created and established. So Moses was put in this basket, in this ark, and he fled from his Hebrew family to an Egyptian family. So similarly, Jesus, when he was born his family to escape this um this decree by the king to murder all newborn sons where do they escape to they escape to egypt another parallel moses is a type of jesus adam is a type of jesus noah is a type of jesus all these things point towards the greater fulfillment which is jesus oh i had more things for abraham i'm going to go back uh he, he tithes to Melchizedek and here's another interesting thing uh Abraham later another one of the famous Abraham stories is that he tie tith- or he um <clears throat> he sacrifices his son Isaac God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac he climbs up this mountain and he is just about to do it but an angel stays his hand and God provides him what God provides him a ram and this ram is, uh, is supposed to be the substitution for the sacrifice of Isaac's son, or I mean Abraham's son, Isaac. And this same mountain that uh, God's provided this ram for is, people say is the same mountain that Jesus was crucified on. So God provided a ram, a sacrificial ram on this mountain for Abraham, for God's people, for Israel. And God, many, many years later, provided another sacrificial ram on that same hill to God's people and instituted a whole new covenant. This is yet another thing that points to Christmas. How does God provide a ram? God provides a ram in himself coming to earth in the flesh as a baby. Pretty cool. I think that's going to be part one, because next I want to get into Judges. And one of my favorite stories that ties into Christmas is in Judges. So stick around for the next episode and I will catch you next time. Merry Christmas.